Hi there. Thanks for subscribing to Are We There Yet? This podcast is a production of WMFE, a public radio station in Central Florida. We're currently in our silent drive, raising money to support shows just like this one. So if you value the conversations about space exploration you hear on this show, consider donating to WMFE. You can do that by visiting WMFE.org support. You can also support this podcast by rating and reviewing it wherever you download. That way more people can discover the show and explore exploration with us. Thanks. From the studios at WMFE in Orlando, Florida, this is Are We There Yet? The podcast exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Private company Relativity Space is designing and manufacturing 3D printed rockets to launch from Cape Canaveral, but one day hopes to see the technology building parts on places like the Moon or Mars. We'll talk with Relativity Space's Jordan Noon about the prospects of 3D printing on other worlds and what his company is doing here on Earth to support that goal. Then, different telescopes see in different wavelengths. So what's the difference between ultraviolet, infrared, and microwave? And how do different wavelengths help us uncover the mysteries of the universe? We'll ask our panel of expert scientists on this week's installment of I'd Like to Know. But first, Relativity Space is designing and building 3D printed rockets to launch from Cape Canaveral, Florida as early as 2021. But Chief Technology Officer and co-founder Jordan Noon wants to take his operation off planet. He joins us via Skype to talk about the company's plans for manufacturing plants on the moon and Mars. But first, he describes what Relativity Space's Earth-based printers look like. The, the printing tech, we actually came up with ourselves. Um, we started the company about four years ago now with the premise of 3D printing an entire rocket. And that involved uh, printing, or I'm sorry, creating the world's largest metal 3D printers uh, in order to do that. And so these printers, they're, you know, they're 20 foot tall right now. We're coming up with next generation ones that are quite a bit bigger. Uh, the parts we can make in them are about 15 foot tall. Um, but the printing process, it's, it's essentially, um, you know, you're melting metal as it's getting pushed into the part. So you're actively feeding raw material into the part and melting it right on top of the part where you want it to fuse in. Um, so you actually get this really cool glow from, from the power source, whether it's a laser or a plasma. There's a variety of ways to do it um, that you actually have this glowing process on top of the part as the printing is happening. And so what comes what comes out of it? I mean, how do you how do you print these parts? Is it do you print them kind of vertically? So you're doing the you know, the circumference of the rocket? Like, how, how does what does it look like? Yeah, it, it starts as just a flat table. Then and uh, a reference we've heard a lot from people is that it looks like spinning pottery, where you have this large objects just spinning on the table. But every time it spins around, you add another layer to it. Um, so you essentially just have the rocket um, growing from this turntable then throughout the entire height of the room. And that is over the course of, of one to maybe three weeks, depending on the part and the amount of internal features on it. And, and at the end of that print, you'll just have the, the rocket structure sitting there in the printer. No, no assembly required. Where did you come up with this idea? Because there's not many companies, I don't think any, that actually are doing this right now. Why did you think that this was possible, and how did the development process kind of come to be? It's an interesting story, because we were seeing, um, both myself and, and my co-founder Tim Ellis in that, um, we were seeing success of 3D printing at a small scale at a variety of aerospace companies. 
And, and metal 3D printing is a fairly emerging technology. It's been around for a couple decades, but didn't get industry traction until, I'd say, um, kind of beginning of this decade, where people started prototyping with it. And it started to prove extremely successful, not only at making prototype parts, but the interesting transition was when it got good enough um, to make production parts, um, but also being able to make production parts with unique features that couldn't be made traditionally. So there was this transition where people went from prototyping traditionally manufactured parts to making parts that could be only made through printing. And that transition was rather unique and actually still pretty slow to be adopted within the industry where there's so much inertia in traditional manufacturing, traditional design, that not many people have realized that there's this brand new manufacturing technology that can open the possibilities for what can be made as far as complexity or certain features or getting certain type of performance. So we, me and Tim were both seeing that independently where the, the printing tech of these off-the-shelf small-scale printers uh, – was becoming viable for, for aerospace and, and specifically space or manned spaceflight applications. And, and to add on to that a little bit more, we were seeing that success, but we weren't seeing anyone that was enabling that technology to be applied to an entire rocket or entire product. And just because the printing tech at the time is, was very limited in scale, so about one cubic foot or like a desktop ornament-sized object. Mm -hmm. And the way that we took it was was kind of zooming back out and saying, if you wanted to make this printing tech the size of an entire rocket, so for us, seven foot diameter and 105 foot tall, then what would have to happen? And that was really the genesis of the company was was that thought that we could actually transform the printing tech to the size of the entire uh, rockets then um, and then build and develop that printing tech in addition to the rocket tech within a company. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned one of the challenges uh, when you and Tim were coming up with this idea was scale. Um, what other hiccups or hurdles did you run into um, as you're trying to get up these full-scale prototypes? There, there were quite a few along the way. There's a, a lot of challenges, um, not only on the printing tech side. And the printing tech includes a lot of, of verticals that are really unique, whether it's the, um, the actual engineering of the deposition process, the material side. There's a lot of data science that goes into it. Um, then, but also building that as a function within a company alongside building a rocket company. Then, and that's actually something that really, to, to our knowledge, hasn't existed in the form of having a company making a product, well, for us, you know, our Terran 1 rockets, completely alongside a generation of printing technology made specifically to make that product. Because it's really two products within one company. Then, And that is the first thing we were doing was a pretty big leap of faith for not only um, ourselves, but people investing in us as well. What about the engines? Um, are those 3D printed as well? They are. Um, we have our Aeon-1 engine. Um, we test it down at our Mississippi test site. Um, nine of them on the first stage, but it is fully 3D printed as well. Um, it has a, a couple non-printed parts just due to the, the nature of them and the maturity of some of the, the smaller scale printing tech. Then, um, but we fully print those um, in a way that very much uh, benefits from the complexity possible from the printing process. Um, traditionally, engines have a ton of internal features, a ton of joining processes like brazing or welding that make them very manually intensive and have a lot of, of cost associated with that manual labor. For us, we just print them holistically then in um, a handful of pieces, and then have those joined together. Um, but fully printed as well, leveraging the old printing tech, which is what we'd seen at other companies start to get adopted, um, and then mount those to the fully printed uh, parts that come out of our large-scale Stargate printers. 
Jordan Noon, when I when I think of a desktop 3D printer, um, you know, I see the big spool of material going into the into the machine that's fed into it, and and then that goes into the nozzle. What are you feeding into your machine? What what does the material, the raw material, look like before it hits these machines? It's actually very similar, um, or or it can be. The the two raw forms of metal that are often used, one is uh, wire. Then, so it does look actually very similar to, let's say, like a plastic 3D printer's um, spool of wire. Then I, I refer to them jokingly as unprinted rockets, you know, around the factory. <laughs> then it's just this, this barrel of wire. Um, then, and then uh, the other form, which is also used, is uh, powder. Then, and that's uh, an atomized metal powder, extremely fine uh, powder. Um, and that is used in the smaller scale printers, which were the, um, they're referred to as DMLS or direct metal laser sintering. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the ones that have been used for the last couple decades around the industry. So it's only those two materials that go into the, the processing? That's wild. Yeah, and that's a lot of the beauty of it as we saw the company coming together was now you take this printing tech and you get extra capability, you get decreased uh, labor needs as far as manufacturing these, then, and you totally simplify the supply chain where now our factories have um, you know, the majority of what's coming into them is this bulk wire and this bulk powder. Then And that was really the transformation we were, we were seeing, that it's not just getting higher performance from the rockets or these new features out of them. It's you simplify the entire company around the printing process because now, rather than having all of these manual technicians that you're training, quality assurance to, you know, to review their work, all of the management, work orders, all of the different kinds of manufacturing equipment that go on a shop floor and the the hundreds of manufacturing processes that go into a rocket traditionally, now you have two. Then, and it's the small scale printing and the big scale printing. And if you baseline that, even if it's not as high performance as, as perhaps the prior approach in certain ways, you simplify the operation so dramatically because you just have these two operations that you can dramatically lower cost and you can very much increase your ability to change the rocket and change the design because there's so little on the shop floor to change um, in order to do that. Now, I'm just coming to think about this. I'm sure you have already thought about this, but you're looking at a a simplified supply chain, a generally autonomous um, kind of process to put these rockets together. Very little input from from folks on the shop floor. This sounds like something that would be very useful on, let's say, a science base on the moon or on something like Mars. Is is that where relativity is thinking long term is to put these factories other places? Absolutely. And that that's been our long term vision from from day one. And it's it's fun for Tim and I to look back at some of the founding documents and the original uh, sort of a vision docs that we put together back at the end of 2015 because uh, we included a line that we want to be the first company to 3D print a rocket on Mars. And um, at the time, we, we didn't talk about it a lot just because we had we had other things to prove. And now with the, the size of the company, the amount of financing we've brought in, we're in a spot where we're, we're more comfortable making that leap of faith for what is the next step for us or, or where do we see our vision going. Then, and and you, you hit it exactly that... This printing tech is something that you could send in a fairly small form factor that is a flexible factory that can make more or less anything metallic. 
um, and can learn to work with new raw materials. And that gets into some of the details on how we do the controls and how we use things like reinforcement learning and, and novel machine learning techniques to improve the print process. Um, but we're getting that to the point where you can give it a new kind of feedstock and it learns how to work with that material. Just like if you're on another planet and you land a printer on Mars, you're not going to want to have a team of metallurgists figuring out which rocks you want to feed in and how well that's printing. You're going to want that to be a very automated process so that can prime what is a future civilization um, being self-sustaining on that planet. So wait, you're, you're teaching your printers how to learn to use different materials that are being put into it? Exactly. And that's part of the fun of having that long-term vision is that you can align you know, work today with what makes sense on the long-term path. And I think we've demonstrated that very well to date in developing the printers in general, because we do believe in the small set market constellations um, and the Terran 1 launch vehicle we're making. But what keeps me excited is realizing that this is a technology that could be used to make an off-planet civilization self-sustaining much, much faster than sending manufacturing equipment or raw goods or spare parts um, from Earth. Mm -hmm. And that, that keeps me very excited. So when I think of some of the problems we have today, and, and you alluded to some of these, um, or you asked on some of these, on what are the challenges of developing the printing tech, a lot of it is tuning what you'd call the deposition parameters, um, which is like how much energy is going into the print process, how much feedstock, how you're melting it then um, a lot of it is tuning that to get a high quality part out consistently. But that is a perfect problem for, you know, novel controls tech um, that's coming out and stuff that we've, we've even had patents come out that you can see online of uh, using a technique called reinforcement learning, which is essentially where you tell the control system to play a game and the game is get a high score. And you tell it how to get that high score, which is, you know, have a high quality metal deposition, have it the shape you want, have it uh, have low amounts of either flaws or cracks within it. And then it tries different strategies and techniques for changing the inputs in order to get that high score. And, and it's essentially playing a game with itself. But that same kind of tech solves bottlenecks we have today of developing different kinds of print parameters for different kinds of geometries or different wall thicknesses of our rockets today that would be the same core of what you'd want autonomously running your printer on another planet or another celestial body, uh, where you're, again, not going to have that team of engineers with it. You're going to want it to land and then learn to work with whatever materials it can source locally to make the best product that it can. That's fascinating. <laughs> That's a really great idea. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's exciting and it, it. it keeps the, the team excited too to be working on something that has that long-term use case mm -hmm. then. And um, as we get to our next steps after introducing Terran 1, there's lots we want to do on the, the rocket side, but um, you know, the concept of landing a printer on the moon then as uh, a next step would be something that we find very valuable not only to support um, you know, our vision, but a lot of the, the direction that, you know, the U.S. federal government wants to go in of having a return to the moon. Mm -hmm. And we think something like that would be much, much easier um, or it could be conceptualized very differently if you could make things like propellant tanks on the moon then or equipment for, you know, a let's say a, a refinery or for a propellant manufacturing plant on the moon with something like our printers, because mm -hmm. you, you now no longer have to bring all of that from Earth. And that very much lowers the mission requirements in order to make something like that happen. Right. That was my next question. This technology isn't just for 
building rockets, as you mentioned, you could build propellant tanks or rover wheels or, you know, turbines on, on wherever you are, right? Exactly. And that's something that, you know, even now we're in a pretty healthy spot to get to first flight of our, our Terran 1 rockets than with where the printing tech is today. But that doesn't mean we're going to take the foot off the gas on developing those. Um, as far as continuing to invest in getting them to learn how to work with new materials, be able to work with different kinds of feedstock and make different kinds of geometries, then and, and complex features is something that is always being advanced in order to, to first off to advance the printer, or I'm sorry, the rocket effort and what we can make um, on a rocket side, but also explore other products on Earth as far as other verticals we could go into here on a manufacturing side. And then also what would we do off planet once these things get, let's say, to, to the moon and we land one of these on the moon? What are the things you'd want to make and what best supports you know, manned exploration by having this printer land on the moon? Now, you mentioned um, earlier that you and your co-founder, Tim, in 2015, when you were making these documents to create Relativity Space and, and outlying your plan, you wanted to be the first rocket manufacturer on Mars. How close do you think you two are to making that a reality? Well, we've actually stuck to our timelines pretty well, all, all things considered, from when we, we started the company, because we're targeting first flight um, early 2021. Then, um, which is which is within a couple months of when we initially uh, initially put a dart on the wall five or four years ago. Then, so kind of five years until first flight from from when we started the company. Then, getting something to the moon is something that we'd slate late to early 2020s. Then, mm -hmm. so let's say 2023, 2024. Then would be the initial baseline then of having uh, a printer landed on the moon, already having demonstrated in the years prior to that things like zero G manufacturing. Um, then with the printers or demonstrating some of the capability, we would need to have something operating in that environment or lo low gravity environment. And then that would be operational. The, the exact timeline for getting something to Mars, I'd say, would still be uh, in work. And I wouldn't want to commit on something like that yet, but I would tack. My, my first guess would be to tack another five years onto it. Then, mm -hmm. so five years to get to Terran 1 flying, five years to land something on the moon, and then another five years to be landing something on Mars. That's an incredibly fast pace, but you're on target to launch Terran 1, right, in 2021? Oh, uh, that's right. That's right. And that's one of the beauties of the printing tech. Um, even though we've had a lot of investment into the printing tech up front, that's very much aligned with our plan of tying short-term investment, long-term investment, that once you have this factory on Earth that can print um, an entire Terran 1 rocket, you can make other things. You can make very lightweight parts for supporting off-planet printers. Um, you can make you know, whether it's next generation rockets that are much bigger and can carry payloads to the moon themselves rather than, you know, us perhaps having to contract out flying a printer um, on someone else's launch vehicle, then that it very much accelerates the rate of progress. Mm -hmm. Then, and that's something we like to accelerate or we, we not accelerate. We like to, to mention that with the printing tech, you know, once you have this factory in place and you have this factory learning how to work with new materials and being able to make new things without investing in tooling. You know, we can make our Terran 1 rockets today at seven foot diameter, but if someone came by and said they needed double the payload and they wanted to fly with us, we could hit a software button and say, hey, I want an eight foot vehicle. Then, and there's some, some redesign involved, of course, it's not as easy as just clicking a button. But on a factory side and an infrastructure side, you don't have to change anything. Mm -hmm. And that's something that really, really um, is unique in our industry in aerospace, where generally aerospace is actually slowed down 
than on rate of progress, you know, since, you know, the 60s, than as far as new things coming out. And SpaceX is the highlight today of quick innovation. Then, But it still takes a long time to get a new version of a rocket out. And uh, you can see in various ways that SpaceX is today um, working towards simplifying manufacturing. A lot of that is very public then um, do the current Starship campaigns then happening uh, across the country. Then, But we take a very different perspective on that where rather than simplifying the manufacturing, we focus on developing machines to be able to make things much quicker and much faster and be able to change them very quickly. And as much as the timelines looking forward are very aggressive, we have a huge amount of infrastructure and investment today that actually makes that future campaign and development much, much easier than for anyone else. Lots of exciting stuff to look forward to um, coming out of your shop there. We've been speaking with Jordan Noon. He's the chief technology officer and co-founder of Relativity Space. Jordan, thanks so much. Thank you. It's now time for a segment called I'd Like to Know, where we take your questions and pose them to a panel of expert scientists. We're joined by University of Central Florida planetary scientists and hosts of the podcast, Walk About the Galaxy, Addie Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell. There are a handful of space-based telescopes making observations of the universe, but not all of these telescopes work the same. Each one makes observations at certain wavelengths, so what are they looking at? Josh Caldwell kicks off the conversation. You want me to name them? Yeah, can you? <laughs> Ooh, start sure. with the, I, where I, you switch I, end. I would, so the wavelengths of light that the human eye is uh, sensitive to are from what we call blue to red, blue being short at about 0.4 microns or 0.4 millionths of a meter uh, to about 0.7 microns, so a very narrow range of wavelengths of light that our eyes are, uh, can detect, 0.7 microns red. Shorter than blue, we've got ultraviolet. Uh, shorter than that, we go to X-rays and gamma rays. And on the longer side, we have longer than red, we have infrared, microwave, radio waves, uh, these wavelengths can extend up to kilometers in scale. Mm -hmm. And what do they each show us? Like, why, why would you look at a particular wavelength for a particular observation? So visible light is what we're used to seeing in, right? So that's partly because the, our, st our star, the sun, emits invis a lot in visible wavelengths, and that's what our eyes have adapted to. Um, but we also emit heat in the infrared, for instance. So a lot of times night vision goggles or infrared goggles are looking in infrared radiation because it's sort of thermal heating radiation. That's how the predator sees. That's also how the predator sees, exactly. <laughs> and some, some fauna see that way. Really? And then there are some like snakes that I think see better toward the ultraviolet. Uh, so there are some, and then like Cassini, for instance, saw pretty well in the ultraviolet looking for certain types of particles. Cassini, the spacecraft, not the person, after whom it was oh, named. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but those those wavelengths correspond to the energy of uh, the smallest unit of that kind of light, and the energy of the light is related to the process that produced it. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so by looking at different wavelengths, we're examining different processes. So as Addie mentioned, hot things like a sun are radiating in the visible. Cooler things like a person or a planet or uh, the prey of the predator are <laughs> radiating in the infrared. Uh, very hot things would be radiating in the ultraviolet. And then there are more exotic processes that can produce things like radio waves and uh, mm -hmm. other things. And the interplay of that radiation coming from an object with the stuff around it uh, removes certain wavelengths of light, so we can use that to diagnose what the heck we're looking at. So the wavelengths are a byproduct of a process happening, and you're looking at that because that will tell you 
something about what you're pointing your telescope at, right? Yeah, there's some energy that produces light at a certain frequency or a certain wavelength. They're sort of interchangeable for our purposes. Um, and there's different types of molecules, for instance, in our atmosphere that emit at different wavelengths. And we can tell what molecules are there by looking at what wavelengths we see. Um, or we can look for really like you mentioned, really hot, bright stars by looking in higher energy wavelengths because those are higher energy uh, processes. So, so you know, one of the basic things facing us right now is greenhouse gases. CO2 is a greenhouse gas. It lets the visible wavelengths of light from the sun come straight through and strike the surface of the earth and warm it up. The earth then radiates infrared or longer wavelengths of light, and that CO2 is opaque to those infrared wavelengths and absorbs it and traps that energy here in the earth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as far as astronomy goes, I mean, obviously you can learn a tremendous amount just with visible, you know, optical, regular light. And that's what we've been doing for almost the entire history of humanity. It's just in the last, whatever, century that we've had the technology to look in these other wavelengths, higher and lower wavelengths than visible. And look how much more we've learned, right? Yeah. And you mentioned space-based telescopes. And one of the key things for that is that we put them up above the Earth's atmosphere. So the Earth's atmosphere absorbs in a pretty broad range of wavelengths, including in the infrared um, and in the And in the ultraviolet, happily, for our skin. Yeah, for our skin. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so if we put telescopes up above the atmosphere, we can actually look at objects outside of Earth at those wavelengths. So would you look at an object in the sky and kind of layer all of those different observations you make at different wavelengths, and that's how you kind of learn more about something? Well, we turn them into a squiggly line called a spectrum (laughs) that tells us how much light we're getting at each different wavelength. And you can combine those squiggly lines from multiple different instruments because you use different technology to look at ultraviolet versus infrared or radio waves or visible. And you can see things like, what is the temperature of that object? What is the composition of gases between the thing that's emitting that light and my telescope? Mm -hmm. Uh, So as Andy was saying, that's one reason it's important to be above the atmosphere because maybe we're not interested in the composition of the Earth's atmosphere but the atmosphere of a distant planet or star. Uh, Those wavelengths shift around depending on how that object is moving. One of the key things with James Webb is the actual expansion of the universe changes the wavelengths of light from very, very distant objects. And so it makes things that would be in the visible part of the spectrum locally appear in the infrared if those things are very, very far away. Mm -hmm. A lot of the images we see uh, from Hubble or Hubble Space Telescope or from um, any of the other sort of space-based telescopes, a lot of times they do combine wavelengths to form sort of the false color images we see. So you'll see an image of a galaxy, but it's actually maybe some radio wave observations on top of some visible observations. And you can see different parts of the structure at those different wavelengths. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's also lots of, uh, another cool thing about these different wavelengths, like for example, say you want to see the center of the Milky Way galaxy, which I, I do. do. Everybody I do. does, right? <laughs> Visible light doesn't make it through all of the stuff in between us and the center of the Milky Way galaxy. Bummer. So all that dust. if we were limited to just it's... optical telescopes, we'd never know what was at the center of the Milky Way galaxy. But radio waves, x-rays, other kinds of things do get through that gas and dust that that is between us and the center, and we can see the center of the Milky Way galaxy, we could see that there's a big giant black hole there and all the other cool stuff that's there. Now, you mentioned the James Webb Space Telescope. In what wavelength will that be making observations in? It's an infrared telescope uh, and a fairly broad range of infrared wavelengths. Uh, So that will be able to observe warm things, but 
not primarily targeted things that are hot or nearby, but they could be very hot or energetic distant things whose wavelengths have been stretched by the expansion of the universe into a longer wavelength and therefore from the visible or the ultraviolet into the infrared. Yeah, really cool telescope because it's it's it was primarily you know designed to see those really distant things that Josh was just talking about, things, galaxies at the edge of the universe. But it's equally good at seeing things in our solar system that just are cooler things than the sun, right? And so planetary scientists are going to be really excited to use the James Webb to look at comets and asteroids and things like that. And cosmologists are going to be really excited to use it to see what the heck is happening at the... Mm-hmm. Edge of our observable universe. Pretty awesome. Now, I'm observing all of you in the visible spectrum. Mm-hmm. Our listeners, how are they consuming this conversation? Uh, not by light, I'm assuming. <laughs> uh, are there cameras <laughs> hidden here somewhere? Where, where are the cameras? I don't know. Um, so uh, light waves and audio waves are very different sort of phenomena. So light is electromagnetic waves. Uh, for the signal from Mm -hmm. the podcast to get to the speakers. Is that what you're... Yeah. So those are electromagnetic waves that are being channeled along wires. Uh, Well, first, if they're listening to it over the radio, that's getting broadcast, encoded Mm -hmm. in radio waves with modulation. uh, And this is an FM station, so it's a frequency modulation of those radio waves that make it to their receiver, which then turns it into vibrations of a speaker. Interesting. We can do a whole conversation about that, I'm sure. <laughs> we could. Yeah. That's a whole different yeah, that's a whole different <laughs> avenue to go down. Well, we've been speaking with Josh Caldwell, Addie Dove, and Jim Cooney. They are the hosts of the Walk About the Galaxy podcast. Thank you all for being here. Thank Thanks. you. Bet. That was Addie Dove, Josh Caldwell, and Jim Cooney, planetary scientists at the University of Central Florida. They also host the podcast Walk About the Galaxy. Check it out wherever you download your podcasts or on their website, walkaboutthegalaxy.com. And if you have a question for I'd Like to Know, send it in. Shoot me an email. You can do that by sending it to yet at wmfe.org or send me a tweet. We're at AWTYMars or find us on Facebook. Search for Are We There Yet podcast. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. Be sure to follow us on social media for the latest space news. This podcast is a production of WMFE and support for it comes from our listeners. Show your support with a donation. Visit wmfe.org slash space. And you can stay connected with more space news. Visit us online at wmfe.org slash space. Until next time, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>